I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This is an idea travelogue. It lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. Where the fuck are they? At its core, the January 6th Capitol insurrection was about stories, about the centuries-long battle over which stories get told. If they don't fix this shit, we're going to fuck this fucking fucking day? For the Capitol insurgents themselves, their story was, we're defending the Republic even if we have to kill people to do it. According to them, the election was stolen. America's freedom was on the line, and it was up to them to do something about it. And then there were counter-stories. The media covering the event seemed desperate to find a story that explained how something like this could happen in a place like America, because after all, this is not who we are. Also jumping onto that rhetorical train was President-elect Biden, who basically framed the insurrection in the ways that parents would talk to their kids. This is not who you are. This is not how we do things. Straighten up. Get it together. Let me be very clear. The scenes of chaos at the Capitol do not reflect a true America, do not represent who we are. No one had a story, though, that confronted the racist underbelly of the insurgency head on to say, actually, no, this is who we are, at least in part. No one had a story about the fact that we've actually had coups before. We've had counter-revolutions before. We forced legitimate governments to their knees before. And so what was really disturbing to me in the battle over the stories was that no one was telling the real story that what happened on January 6th was as American as apple pie. It's just apple pie being brought home to roost at the Capitol to mix metaphors. And while history shows us that the seduction of this American mythology is not new, the Trump administration's efforts to industrialize and weaponize mythology primarily as a means for achieving such drastically self-serving and I have to say violent ends, is something that we haven't seen in quite some time. Today I'm also pleased to announce that I will soon sign an executive order establishing a national commission to promote patriotic education. It will be called the 1776 Commission. In September 2020, Trump launched the 1776 Commission. The commission sought to flood the country with sanitized versions of American history, versions of history that downplayed the horrors of slavery and consecrated our founding fathers as gods. It will encourage our educators to teach our children about the miracle of American history and make plans to honor the 250th anniversary of our founding. Think of that. This is where ideology and violence come together in the same way they came together in the Civil War, in the same way they came together when the 1915 film Birth of a Nation prompted the tremendous growth of the KKK. 
This is how the idea of the United States being born perfect and always improving becomes a cover for the reality that the United States was actually born as a white male project with black people and other non-whites found to be not fit for citizenship. These are the ideas that have long grounded the nostalgia for the good old days, what some white nationalists believe the true America is. This is what the power of storytelling does. But how do we tell new stories when these counterfeit ones are so deeply sewn into our collective DNA? And what does Hollywood's dirty laundry have to do with what happened at the Capitol on January 6th? When my colleagues at Sundance invited me to organize a conversation at this year's virtual festival, I jumped at the chance to explore these questions with some of the greatest minds I know. Brian Stevenson has been a friend of mine since we were 17. We first met in high school when we were part of a group of young leaders during the bicentennial. I was so delighted that Brian Stevenson agreed to come on and talk about the work that he's been doing throughout his career to tell the stories we don't want to hear, the stories about lynching, the stories about judicial lynchings. So I really wanted to get his sense of what he was thinking about January 6th. David Blight, the storyteller of storytellers, he's the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Frederick Douglass's amazing biography and also the author of Race and Reunion. He talks about how the real story of the Civil War has been distorted beyond recognition, distorted by lost cause ideologies. So I was keen to get his sense about how, let's call it lost causism, was showing up in these competing stories about January 6th. Now, talk about a true storyteller. Viet Thanh Nguyen is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, storyteller par excellence. He tells stories within stories. So I remembered from his book, The Sympathizer, how his character was involved in trying to tell a different story about the Vietnam War as part of his effort to be part of a Hollywood blockbuster. And lastly, Ruha Benjamin, I wanted to understand the technological innovations that made the lie at the heart of Birth of a Nation such a powerful tool, a tool of propaganda. It was technique, it was technology that made people feel like this thing I'm seeing right here, this is the truth. I've experienced it. I witnessed it myself. Well, there are new technologies doing the same thing now. How did these new technologies allow the insurrectionists to believe the big lie with the fervor that they did? And what do we need to do about these new technologies? So I had a great crew and we had a great conversation. In the first part of the conversation, I asked Brian Stevenson and David Blight to delve deeper into some of the stories that drove the insurrectionists and the stories that shaped liberal responses to it. Well, in many ways, I don't think we've ever created narratives about Wilmington and Tulsa and much of our history that have been given to the American people. Most Americans, I'm going to even suggest all Americans, walk around with a false narrative of who we are, of what this country is. It's what we were taught in school. It is a narrative of greatness, of achievement, but it is false because it is incomplete. We are a nation that is also a post-genocide society. What happened when Europeans came to this continent was a genocide. We killed millions of indigenous people through famine and war and disease. We created 
a narrative of racial difference. We said that those indigenous people, those native people, they're savages. And we use the rhetoric of that narrative to disconnect from their well-being, their humanity. And we created a constitution that talked about equality and justice, but didn't extend to the millions of native people who were dying. And we use that narrative of racial difference to then get comfortable with two and a half centuries of slavery. We are a slave society. They had slavery all over the world. And in most countries, uh, they were societies with slaves. America actually became a slave society. We created a narrative that made slavery about race. And the great evil of slavery wasn't the involuntary servitude. It wasn't the forced labor. It was this idea that Black people aren't as good as white people, that Black people are less human, less capable, less evolved. And that narrative of white supremacy, that was the true evil of American slavery. The Civil War comes and the North wins the Civil War, but the South wins the narrative war because that idea of racial hierarchy, of white supremacy, continues. Even some abolitionists didn't believe in racial equality. And that's why I've argued that slavery doesn't end in 1865. It just evolves. We pass the 13th Amendment that talks about ending involuntary servitude and forced labor, but says nothing about ending this racial hierarchy. It's why Reconstruction fails, because we weren't committed to a narrative of equality. And lawlessness then defines the 20th century. Black people pulled out of their homes, beaten, drowned, tortured, tormented, lynched, sometimes on the courthouse lawn. Our Supreme Court did nothing. Our Congress did nothing. Our policymakers did nothing. We were a nation in the first half of the 20th century that gave in to lawlessness. And that created this mass exodus. And the Black people who went to Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles and Oakland didn't go to those communities as immigrants. They went to those communities as refugees and exiles from terror in the American South. And then we had the Civil Rights Movement. But even there, the narrative was corrupted. It was a false narrative. We had courageous people who did courageous things. But that narrative of racial difference was never confronted. The presumption of dangerousness and guilt that gets assigned in Black and brown people was never really addressed. So after the civil rights era, when we passed the voting rights law and the civil rights law, we had the same phenomena happening uh, that we had after the Civil War, retreat from enforcement. And then we created this new institution of mass incarceration, over-incarceration. And at the beginning of the 21st century, we're hearing from the Justice Department that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison, and no one responds. We don't react to that with a kind of pandemic level of concern. And our jails and prisons fill up and Black people are shot and killed on the streets by the police, and people are confused why there's such anger and frustration. So the narrative of America that we need to confront is a narrative we've never been forced to confront. And so the challenge we have is, will we find the courage to do this? Because in other countries where this has happened, South Africa, Germany, there was a tremendous shift in power. Black South Africans took over. That's why you had truth and reconciliation. In Germany, the Germans lost. That's why there's a Holocaust memorial in Berlin. And the consequence of that shift in power has yielded something that I think is powerful. When you go to Berlin, there's a reckoning with the legacy of the Holocaust. You couldn't, I don't believe, succeed too long by talking about make Germany great again, by invoking <laughs> some romanticized vision. Yeah. It would not be acceptable to the world to have that. There are no Adolf Hitler statues in Germany. It would be unconscionable for someone to say, let's honor the architects of the Third Reich. But in this country, I live in Alabama, surrounded by the iconography of the Confederacy, where we honor and romanticize the defenders, the perpetrators of this violence. And those images that many of those folks took to Washington on the 6th is an indictment of our failure collectively to tell the honest story. And Hollywood and storytellers and filmmakers are implicated in that. 
because it was a generation of cowboy and Indian films that kept us away from dealing with the native genocide. It was a century of storytelling that made slavery somehow romantic and benign and, and put Black people in roles that we were led to believe they were happy to be enslaved and marginalized and disenfranchised. It was even in the storytelling of civil rights that we had to create white saviors to kind of get those stories palatable. So I think that's the challenge that we face. We've got to confront this. And that's why I believe, you know, we're really at a moment when we need an era of truth and justice. And that's the challenge that I think awaits this country and it's the reason why we had that explosion of lawlessness and, and mob violence on the 6th of January. And I'm so glad, Brian, that, that you named alternatives and also brought cinema into it, right? So when we look at the arc that you talked about, one of the ways that Reconstruction's uh, overthrow was justified was through projecting the criminality of blackness, uh, the criminality uh, which requires so many efforts to contain and punish and discipline and control uh, that the state wasn't even up to the task. We needed the Ku Klux Klan. So I, I, I want to bring David in here, you know, as well. So uh, Brian was talking about dimensions of the lost cause frame and, and what was necessary to make it palatable uh, so that effectively the South won the narrative war. What is it that you see in the sort of revivalism of lost causism in American politics now, and particularly as playing out in January uh, the 6th? Well, thanks. Uh, hard to follow, Brian. I, I love the way Brian can capture so much <laughs> history in single sentences. I wish I could do that. Anyway, um, you know, to, to the original idea he brought up of this, this broad master American narrative that we are a people of progress, always improving, always solving our problems. I think it was Richard Hofstadter, at least that's who's given credit for it, who once said, the problem with <laughs> the way some people do American history is America was born perfect and then launched its career of improvement. <laughs> which, which I know, love that. Seventeen seventy six commission, right? That exactly. That's, that's, that's current. That's that's why that seventeen seventy six project. Well, it's one of the reasons it's it's to be uh, denounced and avoided. But anyway, in the wake of the Civil War, to go right to the core of where where Brian took this. The closest thing we ever had to a, you know, it really wasn't, but the closest thing we ever had to a Truth and Justice Commission were the Ku Klux Klan hearings, as, as Brian knows. In 1871, the Grant administration, to its credit, went after the Klan, especially in South Carolina, but in other upper up south states as well. And they ended up holding hearings in seven states. It developed 14 massive volumes of testimony. These were perpetrators of violence and these were victims of violence. And after these uh, testimonies that went on in seven different states with tribunals of congressmen, by the way, Congress had never done anything like this before. And the purpose of this was to try to prosecute people. They ended up with uh, about 3,000 indictments, about 2,000 others uh, had their charges dropped, 600, and th this was for the, the, the massive level of, of tortures and murders and burnings and so on, done by the Klan from roughly 1868 to 71. Uh, 600 people were convicted, 250 were acquitted. 
most of them got very light sentences. 65 people out of those totals actually went to prison, and none of them for more than five years in a penitentiary in Albany, New York, and they were all out by the election of 1876. Now, one of the reasons they threw out a lot of cases is they said the court dockets were just so overloaded, they, they couldn't even assess the, the trials. So, But here's the point of all of that. The Klan was put out of business, but not the Klan's methods and not the Klan's ideas. It just took on different names and different tactics in different places. Uh, and uh, what, just a year after that was the, the worst massacre of Reconstruction in Colfax, Louisiana where about 50 blacks were murdered in cold blood trying to vote, and then another roughly 300 in that Red River region were killed in, in the wake of it. And then the Klan evolved into other kinds of, of forces and, and methods. A point, though, on this lost cause idea. One of the reasons the Klan hearings did not produce more widespread justice was because of this demand developing across the culture for reconciliation, for reunion of North and South, to somehow put the place back together in peace, which did have to happen. The question was always how you did it. Reconciliation, we should learn from what happened in the wake of our Civil War, always comes with cost. In fact, at blue-gray reunions, which were reunions of soldiers, these were not easy to do at first. But after, by the 1890s, they were happening all over the country, even in northern cities. They usually advertised these blue-gray reunions with slogans like harmonious forgetfulness. Harmonious forgetfulness. I mean, just think about what that means. And then finally, they had, they had the great 50th anniversary reunion at Gettysburg in 1913, this massive spectacle, 53,000 veterans gathered at public expense from all corners of the country. And the whole thing was a segregated Jim Crow reunion where were no black veterans invited. The only black people at that great Gettysburg reunion were black men who built the latrines, handed out the blankets to the old soldiers, and worked in the kitchens that provided the food. The United States, at its 50th anniversary of Gettysburg and therefore the Civil War, had a Jim Crow reunion. And the whole spirit of that reunion was captured by none other than Woodrow Wilson, who was the first Southern-born president elected after the Civil War, he didn't, he didn't want to go to Gettysburg, but he was told by AIDS, no, no, sir, you have to go. You know, you, you don't understand. You have to go. So he comes, he shows up, he gives a speech in a giant tent to all these veterans. And what does he call the Civil War? He calls it the quarrel forgotten. Just hmm. the quarrel forgotten. And he, had, and he left them with this image of all these glorious old men looking into each other's eyes and finding love again. Mm. Anyway, you know, <laughs> that's what harmonious forgetfulness gets us. And the warning there, and I'll stop with this, the caution, of course, is all this talk of unity now, all this talk of healing about our recent experience, whether it's 6 January or everything in the Trump years, our history tells us be very careful 
about how much healing you promote without real justice to go with it. And that's our task mm -hmm. in front of us right now. And it isn't going to be any easier this time than it was 100 years ago. Now, President Wilson is the president that screened Birth of a Nation at the White House in 1915. Now, we'll delve way deeper into Birth of a Nation in the next episode, but it's basically Hollywood's 1776 project. It's got all the bells and whistles of what was new in technology at the time. It made viewers feel like they were there, that they were witnesses to history of the Civil War and all of the excitement of the KKK coming to the rescue. It made people feel like they were riding to the rescue with the KKK. But as we subsequently discuss, it's not just the technology of Birth of Nation that explains why its influence is so enduring. The basic ingredients that make up that film and others like it get replayed and rehearsed time and time again. What's even more terrifying? The fact that we've become so conditioned to expect these storylines that we often don't even realize when we're seeing them. In the next section, we hear from Viet Thanh Nguyen about the prevailing myth of American innocence, how it gains power through film, and then gets rehearsed in this is not who we are responses to January 6th. We'll also hear from Ruha Benjamin, who explains how narrative tropes like heroes versus villains, catharsis and redemption can warp our understanding of past and present events. She starts by explaining how this conditioning might have influenced the media's telling of the story of Eugene Goodman. Goodman was the Capitol Police officer whose courageous misdirection of the mob likely saved the lives of Mitt Romney and other members of Congress as well. There was actually a first round of images, if you recall, that um, seemed to show him being chased by the Capitol mobs up the stairs. And then soon after, there was a second round from a different angle, different set of footage that was dissected still by still that projected the story that he was actually very savvily diverting the mobs away from the senators. And there was a sense of relief that he went from being the tragic Negro to the magical Negro in a matter of hours with these different angles and stories. And in some ways, there was a sense that we had substituted the typical white savior of the Hollywood narratives with a black savior in terms of saving people's lives and really diverting the outcome here. But I think for me, what really I'm wrestling with is this, the hunt almost immediately for heroes amidst uh, these villains. So that kind of casting of heroes and villains, I think allows the rest of us observing and witnessing to distance ourselves from the everyday forms of white supremacy that don't have nooses, that don't have Confederate flags. And it's that distancing mm -hmm. in the mantra that this, this is not America. Yes, right. And so media technologies are just one sort of niche of technologies that both reflect and reproduce the racist status quo. So if we think of storytelling as part of the DNA of humanity, then so much of this legacy of white supremacy is being baked into technologies that are having an impact on every area of our lives. And the lie at the heart of whether it's cinema or these other technologies is that there's some 
neutral, objective kernel to it, that it has this veneer of objectivity that the more we believe that it is neutral and objective, the less likely we are to question the stories that are baked into these these systems. And so, um, you know, there's so many examples we could pull from. But I would say that, you know, in addition to our discussion about the watchful public on January 6th, the one other sort of wrinkle I want to put in the conversation is that the public wasn't just watchful but everyday people were also storytellers on that day. And what I mean by that is that with the proliferation of social media, people aren't just consuming, but producing stories. And one of the interesting sort of uh, genres in the aftermath of January 6th was the hashtag no fly list which were initially videos of Capitol rioters who were being arrested and pulled off of flights or off of other transportation. Then there was a second round of videos that took the original footage and remixed it (laughs) and put it to music and created memes. And so there was this element of catharsis that went along with this using these social media technologies to tell a kind of story about the aftermath that I think on one level might have made people feel good, kind of spectacle of justice light, L-I-T-E. But I think that the fleeting virality of that kind of digital shaming that we saw, it really stands in contrast to the otherwise light touch of law enforcement that many people have noted um, with the question, what if those were Black Lives Matter protesters? So I think that tech-mediated catharsis that came from that more participatory form of storytelling through social media and all of those memes that came out of that are really poor substitute for a, a more sustained reckoning with what actually went down. Yeah, yeah. As is often the case, um, social justice-minded uses of technology try to keep up, right, and try to intervene and interrupt and sometimes do so. But it's always against the backdrop of who has access first to to technology and what the dominant narrative line is. These are interruptions against pre-existing narratives. And so, Viet, I want to come to you again on the, the question of Uh, January 6th, and this is not who we are, as we marry that to sort of the conventions of of character and 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 uh, storylines and and you know characters that we know about, and ask you what you see as a more useful analogy, perhaps that captures the America that was unmasked by uh, the events of January 6th. Well, I think certainly what happened was that the literal inability of people to wear masks is also a revelation of what was behind the masks for so many of these people and their followers who believe that taking the capital was the way to take the country back. But what I think is another analogy for understanding some of the points that other people have made, for example, Brian brought up the issue that genocide and slavery are fundamental to this country. David brought up the issue that America has contradictorily both born perfect and is always improving. One of the ways that this this happens repeatedly is that Americans believe that they are innocent. We are innocent of all of these things that have happened in our history. So when something like the Capitol attack happens, our reflex is to say, or reflex of many people is to say, this is not who we are, because we're shocked by this kind of a revelation. And yet throughout American history, we are, as a nation, perpetually shocked every time something contradicts our mythology of ourselves. 
And the narrative of American innocence, I think, is fundamental to the way that American storytelling works, and especially how Hollywood operates as America's unofficial ministry of propaganda. I mean, we don't need an official ministry of propaganda, unlike, let's say, in China or the, or the former Soviet Union, because we have Hollywood, where liberal values oftentimes intersect with dominant American values. And I think Birth of a Nation perfectly exemplifies uh, this kind of function that Hollywood plays. So, of course, now we can look back at that film and renounce the fact that the KKK is the central protagonist of that movie. But in fact, Hollywood has taken the template of Birth of a Nation, from the rescue of a damsel in distress to the rescue of a nation, to fending off hordes of colored people and privileging white heroes, and made that the template of many, many Hollywood blockbusters. And so what I like to say, looking at this intersection of Hollywood storytelling and uh, American tragedy, is that all wars are fought twice, first on the battlefield and the second time in memory. And certainly we see that with the Civil War and the lost cause ideology that we're still fighting this war over and over. We see it in things like the Vietnam War, where the United States lost and yet has fought the war over and over again. And it illustrates the power of American storytelling out of Hollywood in that Hollywood has the power to write history. And so even though the United States lost the Vietnam War, it has actually written the history of the Vietnam War for the world through cinema. So on the screen or on the page, I mean, one of the most important things we have to confront is that people aren't simple and countries aren't simple. If we believe in the idea of innocence, then we're shocked. But you know, Hollywood storytellers and anybody who's written stories obviously knows that most people are probably more like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We have contradictory aspects of our, of our personalities. As Scott Fitzgerald said, the, the, the true test of a fine intelligence is to hold two opposing ideas at the same time and still be able to function. And again, American innocence short circuits that ability to function. But people outside of the United States who have been subject to American power find it very easy to understand that the United States is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that there's a good parts and bad parts of the country that are fundamentally at odds with each other and are born out of the original conditions of this country. That makes for great stories that we can, if we can confront that kind of a contradiction. So as Viet brilliantly said, first there's the actual war, but then there's the war of memory. And over the last century, Hollywood has been ground zero for the retelling of our war, the Civil War. Now, if historical memory is created and rewritten through cinema, as Viet says it is, then Hollywood has to bear some responsibility for the consequences of some of the warped narratives, like the way that Capitol rioters, those assaulting the Capitol to save the imperiled nation, were riding to the rescue, just like the Klan did in The Birth of a Nation. But how exactly did the losers of the Civil War get their story to be the story that shapes the future? What explains the fact that even at this late date, those old racist storylines haven't been utterly dismantled? Well, for that, we have to revisit David Blight's story that he began at the beginning of this podcast when he spoke about President Wilson's framing of the Civil War as a quarrel forgotten. How is it that the Civil War, a massive cataclysmic event that wiped out a significant percentage of the male population in spilling blood over the right to hold African-Americans in perpetual bondage, how is it that that does not register in American memory as a treasonous event, 
a poisonous illustration about the utter destructiveness of white supremacy. In fact, it is through white supremacy, as David and Brian will lay out now, that the North and the South were able to change the story of white supremacist treason to a different one of regional reconciliation, a quarrel indeed entirely forgotten, sealed by the abandonment of black people, men and women who sacrificed and fought on the side of the union. This so-called reconciliation is the storyline we've been living under ever since. Reconciliations, you know, if we think about it, whether they're personal, familial, nations, whole cultures, reconciliations have costs. And the question is, what are the costs of reconciling? And can you control what those costs are? There will be costs to reconciliation. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's what it demands of us, but, but what are we willing to pay in costs mm-hmm. to reconcile something? Um, especially now that this radical right ideological movement has such a home within the Republican party. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, this isn't a fringe thing now. It's, it's lodged in a, a major political party. And yeah. Yeah. how do you reconcile with that? I really don't talk about reconciliation that much anymore. Mm. Not that word, because we were never in a place of community and harmony that we can claim to be trying to get back to. <laughs> you know, Black people were crime victims, kidnapped and brought here. Then we were enslaved. Then we were abandoned. Then we were disenfranchised. Then we were segregated. Now we are incarcerated. That moment that we're trying to connect to does not exist in the American experience. I use the phrase truth and reconciliation, but for me, it's about truth telling, because I, I don't think for me, those things are sequential. You can't have reconciliation without truth. And I think that's David's point. It's got to be truth and, but that's why some of us are talking about repair, remedy. That's why some of us talk about these other R words, because they're more descriptive of what needs to happen given this history. You know, you wouldn't say to any Jewish survivor, oh, you should reconcile with the Nazis, with the Nazis still in power. It'd be unconscionable. Even the concept of make America great again is a concept rooted in this idea that our best days are somehow behind us, that there's a period in American history that we all recognize as being the greatest period of America. And for women, I'd really like somebody to explain to me when that period was. (laughs) Folks, I really would like them to explain. We had a Senate candidate here in Alabama, Roy Moore, who ran in 2018 and was pressed on it. And he said, well, you know, obviously, in the 1850s and 60s. I mean, I know slavery was bad, but that's the period when America was, was greatest. And oh my God. isn't it crazy? You know, if in Germany, they somebody started to make Germany great again, mm-hmm. talked about that period in the early part of the 20th century, mm-hmm. they would recognize that for what it is because you cannot be German and not know the history of the Holocaust. It's just not possible. Every German student goes there. It is a part of the way Germany has responded to that history. And that's the reason why my work is so focused on creating a new understanding in relationship to the legacy of slavery and lynching and all these other things, because we've allowed this country to now enter its you know, fourth century with no effort at memory around these things. I have to say, I was speechless when Brian told me that thing about Roy Moore. I looked it up afterwards so I could see it for myself, hear it through my own ears. And it was worse than I even imagined. 
here's what he said. I think it was great at the time when families were united, even though we had slavery. People were strong in the families. Our families were strong. Our country had a direction and we corrected many of the problems, end quote. Okay, so we're talking about antebellum United States, like when 4 million people were enslaved, people whose families were not allowed to stay together. They were torn apart, most never to be seen again. United in direction, yeah, that direction, white supremacy, black subordination, bondage. That's not a past that many of us have any fantasy about wanting to go back to. But hey, it makes sense if it's the story you want to tell of a country born perfect and continuing to get better ever since. The right knows that these stories matter and they're damn good at using them to achieve their political goals. So what do we have to do about it? Well, look, there's an enormous cache of stories, of histories that have told the truth that we'd rather not see. The question is, how do we get those ideas into mainstream material? How do we build cinema around a more inclusive, a more critical, a more honest confrontation about what our history actually is? Because right now we're still rooted in a framing of American cinema that owes more to D.W. Griffith than it owes to those who actually sacrificed to make this country better. It's not that this country used to be great and needs to go back to that. Rather, we need to build a new future by seeing plainly all that our country has been and all the efforts that have been made to make this country a different one. So the real challenge even to those liberals who believe that we need to do better, is to define what doing better really is. It's not diversity. It's not just casting more Black people in narratives that rehearse some of the same tropes and the same storylines. It's really about challenging those narratives, challenging those expectations, understanding how the history of America and cinema is intertwined and embedded in American memory. It's the same challenge that we face as a democracy. It's not just about putting more Black faces in high places. It's about actually interrogating what those high places do, how they continue to function, to extend the initial sins of the Republic into the contemporary moment. So yeah, we can tell diverse stories about how Indigenous people and Black people and other non-whites were part of the American project. Or we could tell stories about how those projects deny democracy, how those projects set our country up for expectations that ensure that unless we break these beliefs, we'll continually rehearse the drama and the tragedy and the bloodletting that the initial compromises actually produced. So the challenge is, of course, to move away from simple reformism, simple diversity, to really rethinking and recreating new ways of receiving media, new ways of receiving stories, new ways of experiencing and consuming cinema. That's what the challenge is of telling the story of us. And we know now that the connection between what goes on in Hollywood and what goes on in Washington, D.C. is not a 3,000 mile distance. What drove those people on January 6th is partly to defend a narrative that they've been seeing and hearing their entire lives. 
So when folks in the storytelling industry here in LA look at what happened on January 6th, shaking heads with a tiss, 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 it's important to say we're implicated in that story as well. So what are we going to do about it? Stay tuned for part two next week, where we'll delve even deeper into Hollywood's role and responsibility in shaping the story of us. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. Today's episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine with support from Amarachia Nakaranye, Rebecca Sheckman, Destiny Spruill, and the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.